Please be seated. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you all this morning. And it's an honor to be preaching in a church that I love so much. Uh, many of you know that my husband and I first placed membership at Highland uh, when we moved here for me to do my MDiv in 2012 at ACU. And our first Sunday, we visited at Highland, and a little girl read scripture from stage with the support of a loving congregation. And I turned to Nate and I said, we're not leaving. <laughs> well, we did leave. We left in 2017 uh, to go to Boston where I started my PhD. And fast forward five years and now we're back. So it's really wonderful to be with you this morning. I grew up in the home of a preacher. I don't know how many other preacher's kids are in the audience. I feel like we have an unspoken connection. I grew up in the home of a preacher and I was the youngest of five and the only girl, and I was also the one who took the greatest interest in what my preacher dad was doing with his job. And it wasn't just about Sundays. You know, I've heard the jokes my whole life that preachers work one day a week, and that could not be further from the truth. Uh, preachers typically are deeply invested in the life of the congregation, which is not restricted to Sunday mornings. It's happening Monday through Saturday. And so I was particularly curious about what was happening Monday through Saturday. And so my dad decided that he would take me with him whenever it was appropriate uh, to see what he was up to. So I kind of shadowed him, starting when I was just a little girl. And from that position, I got to witness the most significant days in the life of the church, the most significant days in people's lives. So I saw the good, like graduations and weddings and baptisms. But I also was there for people's worst days, like the day, the week, the month that they always look back to and remember as the worst time of their lives. And a lot of times I was there with my dad in the hospital room, at the funeral home, in the living room of the person who's going through the worst. And I can remember that on our way to visit people, my dad would kind of coach me in the car about what we are going to do, what we could expect. And he would tell me, when we get there, Amy, let them lead. Let them lead. Let the person who is hurting lead and we'll follow. And I remember one time I asked the question, well, what if they don't tell us what they need? Which was actually a pretty astute question in hindsight. And my dad kind of smirked, and he took a, a pause of silence as if to, like, mark the seriousness of the lesson. And he said, well, we can wait. We'll just be there, and we'll wait. Those memories are frozen in my mind as holy encounters, sacred ground moments in those hospital rooms and people's homes. Those were the moments that most indelibly shaped my theological imagination. So it will make a little bit of sense then when I tell you that my very favorite book of the Bible, the, the book that is receiving our attention this morning, is the book of Job. 
Job has been the subject of my studies for a long time. It, it caught my attention in high school, and that carried on through my entire theological education, sparking the most important questions in my mind and the most important ideas kind of gathering and, and guiding my education. And I haven't been able to put it down. I haven't gotten tired of it yet for about half my life now. But oddly enough, in my 13-some years of preaching, I've actually never preached Job before. I never dared to, to be honest, before this morning. It seems like the more time I spend with Job, uh, the less confident I actually feel about making like big, bold, singular claims about the meaning of the story. And maybe that would honestly be true of all scripture, like the longer that we study it and dwell with it, the more we start to see that there's this rich, complex, multifaceted world in scripture, an abundance of meaning and possibilities. So I was once on a panel discussion with a Jewish scholar by the name of Amy Jill Levine. And I'll never forget that she described scripture like a diamond. And it's like when you hold a diamond up to the light and you start to turn it in the light slowly, you start to see new facets of the diamond kind of revealing themselves in the light as you turn it. And so it is with the book of Job. This biblical text has had many meanings over a millennia to many different people. Uh, Augustine once famously said that interpreting the book of Job is like trying to catch an eel with your bare hands, which is a weird metaphor, but he said that the harder that you grasp at the eel, the faster it swims away. So I think that this lengthy, complex book requires that we approach humbly this morning, slowly, with our palms open, ready to receive it. And not only because the meaning of this wisdom book is a little bit elusive, but more importantly, because in the center of the book of Job sits a body in the ashes. A wounded man who has faced unimaginable suffering. So we don't come in swinging with our ready-made assumptions. We tread gently, letting Job lead us. So for the uninitiated, for those who have not read the book of Job, I mean, it's 42 chapters, so it's a commitment, okay? It's not like a light afternoon read. So for those who have not read the book, or maybe you've only read part of the book, or you haven't read it in a long time, allow me to reintroduce you to my favorite story. The book opens with a narrative introduction, something very much like a, a once upon a time opening, except this story begins with, there once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And we are told that Job is a good man, upright, one of integrity. He loves God and he loves his family. When his children throw parties together in each other's homes, Job can be found somewhere else offering sacrifices on their behalf and praying for them. He's fastidious in his faith and he's a family man. And we learn throughout the text that Job is regarded as one of the great men of his society. He's one of great power and authority, but he wields that power very responsibly and with humility. He takes care of the vulnerable, he shares his wealth with those around him, and by all accounts, this is the picture of a good and righteous man. 
Now in those days, the predominant theological thought among ancient Israel was that if you do what is right, God will bless you. If you do good, you get good in return. But if you mess up, well, to quote Johnny Cash, God's going to cut you down. So if you found yourself in a bad set of circumstances, if you were suffering, it was just presumed that you had done something to bring this upon yourself. And that was the predominant thought that kind of forms the backdrop to the book of Job. So you've got this good man, Job, and according to popular belief, he should really have it made. This guy has to be God's favorite. No bad could possibly come to him. But of course, if you read beyond the first few verses of the book, you know that's not how things go for Job. Over the course of a heavenly wager between God and the adversary, Job is put on trial. And in an instant, Job's life comes completely unraveled. He loses his property, his wealth, his livestock. He loses his children. He loses his own health. He loses his social status. His relationships become strained. He still has his wife, who always gets a bad rep when people read the book, but think about it, she lost everything too. She lost her home, her financial security, her social status, her relationships, her children. And from the looks of it, she might lose her husband, who has been stricken with this horrible disease. They've lost nearly everything. And in case at this point you were tempted to think, well, God must have surely had a very good reason for dashing Job's life into pieces, I unfortunately have to turn you to Job chapter 2, verse 3, where God admits that God has destroyed Job's life for no good reason. It's not God's best look. It opens up a whole theological can of worms that absolutely deserves our consideration. But this morning, we're actually going to spend more time following Job's lead. So Job has these three friends who come along, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the text tells us that initially they came with the intent to comfort Job. And they start off strong. They sit with Job in the ashes in silence for seven days. For seven days. Now, seven days is a long time for silence. And we can barely withstand a few moments of silence. Seven days is a long time for silence. It's enough time. Enough time for Job's worldview to come unraveled. I mean, he's been mulling over what happened, replaying it in his mind again and again, and he's finally reached this conclusion, I did not deserve what happened to me. And maybe what I thought about God before all of this isn't right. So the third chapter of the book uh, breaks the seven days of silence with this horrible lament an anguishing lament. Job unleashes this lament, and let me tell you, it is decidedly impatient. I don't know what you have heard about Job and his patience. He doesn't have as much of it as we sometimes think. In fact, the book never calls Job patient. He's hurting. He's traumatized. 
And now that he's ready to speak, there's going to be a reckoning. Now, if you've been following the story carefully up to this point, then you know that Job is right. He really didn't deserve this, and even those in heaven know that Job didn't deserve this. But the friends have no construct for this. In their worldview, you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. It's plain and simple. So according to Job's friends, surely Job did something wrong. Surely Job did something to deserve this. They took one look at the ruin of Job's life and assumed that Job had it coming. He's a sinner. He had it coming. They exemplify what we might call spiritual bypassing. Have you ever heard this term, spiritual bypassing? Uh, it refers to uh, the, the practice of uh, offering spiritual ideas or words or thoughts that kind of bypass a person's pain or suffering. They think that this is a way of protecting God. As Job shakes a fist at God in his lament, the friends feel an urgency to hurry up and, and protect God against Job's lament. But as Barbara Brown Taylor once observed, generally speaking, people never behave more badly than when they believe they are protecting God. So what do we make of Job's story? Well, one of the key conflicts of the book is that Job represents the shattering of a worldview, a rupture in theology, and it comes through in the dialogue with his friends. The friends continuously assert explanations for Job's suffering, defending God's actions, insisting that Job must repent, and the truth is, they're really not trying to hurt Job. They believe they are helping. They think that they are offering Job a way out of the suffering. If the order of the universe can be broken down simply into matters of righteousness and sinfulness, then Job just needs to confess his sins and everything will be okay. But the thing is, this does harm Job. That kind of talk hurts. Job tells us that his friends become his tormentors. They add insult to injury. Every time that they double down on their beliefs in the presence of Job's wounds, they issue a further blow. They refuse to let Job lead them. Lead them into the wounds. Lead them into the truth. They will not allow Job's suffering to challenge their thoughts. If they would draw near to Job's wounds and affirm the truth that Job did not deserve what happened and that suffering and hardship are not indicators of a person's goodness or morality, if the friends would admit that Job's circumstances do throw a wrench in the gears of their thoughts about God, then maybe they would have had a chance at being good comforters. And maybe the book of Job would have been a lot shorter. But instead, they grill him for dozens of chapters. They ring him out, debate after debate. Job becomes exhausted and despondent. And I have to think that we would too if we were Job. And some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, I've been Job. I've been there. So you understand that a person in this situation grows tired and desperate and fearful and angry. So in the most intense chapter of Job's speeches, he cries out accusing God of hunting him like a warrior. 
seizing upon him and dashing him against the rocks with no mercy. I told you, this isn't the best look for God. And these are big accusations against God. And yeah, Job is decidedly impatient by this point. So it is surprising then, when God finally speaks up to set the record straight after dozens of chapters of divine silence. The text tells us that God shows up in a whirlwind, a whirlwind, and addresses Job directly. And God waxes poetic about creation, offering Job a panoramic display of the cosmos, the wild animals, the seasons, behemoth and leviathan, a creation with order that is also somehow home to a great deal of chaos. And for God, this wildness of creation, this chaos of creation is not to be co-opted by ideas of sin or evil. Rather, the wildness of life seems to be characteristic of creation. It's part of it. It's almost like God is saying to Job, look around you. This is a wild world you live in, and I cherish it all. The only way that the creator could. After this encounter comes the really surprising part about God's response. God turns to the friends and offers something like a formal adjudication of the debate. In chapter 42, verse 7, God turns to the friends and says, I am angry with you because you have not spoken truly as Job has. And it's surprising because if you kind of backtrack and you're looking at the speeches between Job and his friends, well, his friends were just repeating the things that they were taught to believe. They were just kind of repeating the authoritative, widely accepted ideas about God and suffering. Job's the one who's coming out with fighting words. Job's the one that's accusing God of hunting him. Job is the one who is really causing a fit. <laughs> but there's something right about it and there's something wrong about what the friends were doing and I have to confess right now that this type of story is actually my favorite type of story let me explain myself the protagonist goes on a journey of discovery holding fast to his integrity the truth of his life and he faces many obstacles and challenges only to be vindicated in the end yes Job is right. And that's a really good story in my book. And frankly, I kind of wish that this is where the book ended. Yeah, like Job is right, the friends were wrong, the moral of the story is somewhat clear. Uh, but the problem is the book doesn't end there. And I know it took us a while to reach this point in the story this morning, but this is actually where I want to focus our attention, here in the ending of the book of Job. Because the ending of Job, as you heard in the scripture this morning that Ashley read, goes on to describe how God restores Job's wealth abundantly. How Job's reputation and standing in his community is restored. Job is given new children, seven sons and three daughters. And in the end, Job can be found in the middle of a big party with friends and family. And I don't like it. The ending has always bothered me. It's almost like 
the author just expects us to accept this big, pretty bow tied on the ending of a horrific litany of traumatic events. Almost like we're just supposed to accept a happy ending, when just moments before in the text, Job's life was in absolute ruin. You see, I read the book of Job with a lot of people in mind, some in this room, people that I've sat with who have lost loved ones, people who lost their jobs, people who received scary diagnoses, people who have endured unimaginable suffering. And so this ending of Job feels like an insult. One of my favorite Job scholars said something like, it lacks the aesthetic tidiness that we expect of good literature, which is like a, a scholarly way of just saying, it's a clunky ending, we don't like it. And I don't like it because I've been raging with Job over the chaos of life. I've been hurting with Job, feeling his laments, disturbed by his friends, confused by God, and frankly, I'm not over it. I'm not over it. And you don't need me to tell you that the last couple of years have presented their own kind of Job-esque chaos, an unjustifiable, unexplainable wounding of life. Some have lost more than others. This church has experienced profound loss. My husband and I experienced profound loss. And all I know here in the wake of this trauma is that I'm just not over it yet. There is not a big enough or pretty enough bow in all of the universe that we could throw on the church this morning that would take away the hurt that we are still carrying. I don't want more spiritual bypassing. I don't want that because I don't want to miss out on where Job is leading us. I don't want to miss out on that. Job is leading us into the wound, showing us something very important. So I hold in my memory those moments with my dad sitting with people on their worst days, sitting in silence often, waiting for the person to lead, and then allowing and affirming whatever insights boil to the surface, no matter how raw or jarring or awful as they might sound, letting it happen and welcoming it. I've always liked the book of Job because it smacks of that kind of realism. It's what I saw growing up, and Job seemed to affirm it. We live in a wild world, and though God is in control, sometimes things happen that we just can't explain. So when I read Job, I read with Job. Like, I'm like Job's hype woman, okay? Like, I start to feel kind of scrappy reading this book. I want, I want Job to tag me into the ring so I can get around with the friends. Yeah, what Job said, life isn't fair. God is really confusing right now, and y'all are straight up really bad at being friends. So you can understand why the ending of Job bothers me. Job's wealth is restored. He's given new children when we all know you can't replace children. He seems to get this big, happy ending, and I'm not over it. I don't know how anyone could be. So yeah, I've always resented the ending of Job, never dreamed in a million years that I'd be preaching the ending of Job until the past year. The past year, the diamond of Job began to turn into light again, and I started to catch new facets of Job that I had never seen before, never noticed or understood before. You see, I found myself 
in my own crushing set of circumstances, isolated by the pandemic, devastated beyond rational thought. And as I tried my best to hammer away at a dissertation about Job, I stumbled across a comment about this ending. A Jewish scholar made this observation. He said something like, you know, even the survivors of Auschwitz were known to set up businesses and build homes and have children. And I read that comment and I thought, we would never resent that happy ending. We would want the survivors of Auschwitz to have whatever goodness could possibly come to them, right? So why can't I accept this ending of Job? Why does it bother me? Maybe the ending of Job is trying to show us something more, something that I've never really been ready to see until now about life after loss. Maybe this is what it means to survive, to encounter the chaos of life and live to tell the tale, to see your life come unraveled and to somehow dare to keep waking up, somehow dare to imagine that there could be more life worth living on the other side, somehow dare to embrace good things after catastrophe. And I know it's a scary thing. I know that personally. I know it's scary to reach out your hands and receive a good thing when so many good things were taken from you. I know that's hard. I know it's scary. But the ending of Job offers us something really special here, something that I had missed before and a word I never noticed until the past year. In Job 42, verse 11, the text says, Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So it's actually not just a big old party here at the end of the story. This isn't a perfect fairy tale ending. Notice that the text says they comforted him. They comforted him, as in he's not over it yet. He still bears the marks of what happened. He is still processing the grief. His family and friends aren't expecting this new home and new family members to fill the void of what Job had lost. No, they know this is going to be a journey. They know that Job requires comfort, even as he dares to step into something new and good. So I've come to embrace this ending of Job because I think it offers us a sharp contrast from the rest of the book. It shows us what could have been different if Job's friends had let Job lead. <laughs> this is actually what happens. This is what it looks like when we resist the impulse to neglect or talk over another person's suffering. This is what is possible when we welcome each other's wounds. Job steps into a new beginning, surrounded by family and friends, a new home, feasting at a table where he doesn't have to pretend that it's all good. Job can find joy again with family and friends because Job is not expected to save face. So, you know, in my studies of Job, I've come across a lot of really fascinating things uh, from the book's history. Uh, and I remember reading sometime in the past year that in the medieval period, 
picture Bibles were pretty popular for a largely illiterate society. Uh, and so people were learning Bible stories through images, through picture Bibles. And a lot of times these picture Bibles were communicating something quite profound, theologically profound, in the way that the images were constructed and placed on the page. And in some of these picture Bibles, they would have Old Testament stories juxtaposed with New Testament stories, kind of creating this like intertestamental correspondence in the theological imagination of the readers. And I read in my studies this year that in some of those picture Bibles, there was an image of Job's family feasting at a table next to an image of the heavenly banquet with imagery from the book of Revelation. It was almost as if to say there is something heavenly, something good and right and holy in our capacity to gather at a table in the midst of trauma, in the wake of life's hardship. What does it look like for the people of God to survive, to carry on, to cross the sea or rebuild the temple or celebrate the resurrection. We know that suffering leaves a mark. It changes us. I mean, Jesus quite literally bears the marks of the crucifixion when he appears to the disciples in the upper room after his resurrection. The crucifixion left a mark. We know that suffering stays with us. So I've grown to love this ending of Job in a year that I survived because it reminds me that there can be life after death, there can be fellowship after isolation, and there is comfort to be found in community after we endure the unthinkable. Now many of you already know this. I've been keeping tabs for the last five years, watching you on Facebook and checking in on phone calls with people, how's everyone doing? And I know that I'm preaching to the choir because you have faithfully carried one another through the worst of the worst. You have held one another close in the ash heap. You have carried each other's sorrows. You have listened to one another. And you've resisted the impulse to explain it all away or throw a big happy bow on another person's story. You've started to create a new future together, all while offering comfort. And it's a stark contrast from Job's three friends, but I believe it's the way it's supposed to be. Like maybe this ending of Job is trying to give us an idea, help us catch a glimpse of the alternative to the friends, that this is what happens when you allow your hurting friend to lead you, to lead you to the table. If you're not over the hardship, of life in general or the last couple of years, I feel you and I'm totally with you and it's okay. Together, gathered together, we can dare to embrace good things on the horizon. We can start to share in the good even as we contend with the bad. We can do that together. I wanna go ahead and invite the prayer team to come forward. Um, and if you are in need of prayer, uh, I invite you to, to come forward while I offer this benediction. If you're new to this community or just finding your way back, welcome to the feast. Welcome to this new beginning.
You don't have to check your scars at the door. They are welcome here. There is room for our stories, room for our whole selves, wounds and all. Go in peace.